John chapter 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning you know that I do not deserve the honour of preaching such precious words as those found on the lips of your son as he hung on the cross. And yet, thank you, Lord, for the finished work of our Lord Jesus that lavishes us with grace upon grace upon grace and gives us freely many, many things that we do not deserve. Lord God, I pray as we spend time together as a family, whether present or online, listening to these words of our Lord Jesus, that you would give us even a glimpse into the kindness and compassion and grace that is found in his heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning, I want to begin by having a conversation about our culture. We live in a culture where genuine compassion for others is becoming harder and harder to find. Now, I'm not talking about those that are like us. I'm not talking about those that are our same age or stage or ethnicity or religion or gender. I'm talking about those that are different, in particular, those that share different views. In particular, those with views that disagree with our own or that are not widely embraced by our culture. You know, we see this truth play out in the rise of what is known as cancel culture. It's this idea where a person or celebrity or employee makes public remarks that are not considered politically correct. And as a result, there's a social, social media, public media outcry and pressure not only to boycott that person, but to boycott their business, to sack them, to silence them completely. Uh, Notable recent examples would be Jermaine Greer, J.K. Rowling, or perhaps closer to home, Israel Folau. Pressure is even more applied to individuals close to them, such that if you do not also speak out against that person, you too will be boycotted as well. 
Uh, the famous singer-songwriter Nick Cave says the following, speaking about our culture. He says this, he says, As far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. Its once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity for redemption. It has become, quite literally, bad religion run amok. See, our culture of attempting to silence those who speak out according to what is politically correct is, according to Nick Cave, the unhappiest religion in the world. It's self-righteousness with no capacity for redemption whatsoever. It's the opposite of mercy and compassion. It's the opposite of seeking to understand and embrace even those who disagree with us. You see, we've become far more moralistic as a society, actually. It's just that our morals have changed. The new morals of our age, including environmentalism and sexual identity and expression. Uh, as the environmental activist uh, Greta Thunberg often says, speaking to those of the previous generation who have damaged the environment, and we will never, ever forgive you. Here's a question I want us to think about together this morning as a church. Where can you turn if you've made a mess of things in your life? Where can you find genuine compassion in this world? Where can you find compassion if life hasn't gone for you as you hoped? Where can you find compassion if you're a single mom struggling as a parent? Where can you find compassion if you're stuck in a job you despise with no prospects for change? If your marriage is difficult, if you're having repeated health challenges, if you're struggling with loneliness and disappointment, where can you find compassion if you've been hurt by others? If you've been overlooked time and time again, if you've been abused by a loved one, if a friend has said things about you that are incredibly hurtful, if no one seems to understand you, where can you find compassion if you're a moral failure? If you've betrayed a friend's trust, if you've been unfaithful to your spouse, if you've been caught stealing at work, if you've lashed out at anger at your children again and again, if you've got a secret addiction that you're hiding like pornography or alcohol or weed, where can you find genuine compassion? You know, if you take notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Cry of Compassion. And I've got three simple points that we're going to be looking about, about this cry. And they are the heart of God displayed, the heart of God denied, and the heart of God enjoyed. But one hope for us this morning that comes from these verses, and that is that we would see that the heart of Jesus is filled with compassion for those who come to him. The heart of the Lord Jesus on the cross, what we will see this morning, friends, as we examine these words, is that his heart is filled with compassion. And so we dive straight into our first point this morning in our time together, the heart of God displayed. 
You see, today's passage is truly holy ground as we come to the foot of the cross. And so I want us to slow down in the lead up to Easter at the start of this series and come on a bit of a journey as pilgrims to the foot of the cross. And so we're going to take our time to get ourselves into the events that have been leading up to these verses. You see, Jesus had for months been teaching that he would go to the cross in Jerusalem to die. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, he says this to his disciples. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day, and he will be raised on the third day. In fact, Luke, in Luke's account of Jesus' life, says that he had set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus had determined that he was going to Jerusalem to die. This was no accidental death. This was purposeful. Earlier on in the gospel we've been reading from, John's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And so Jesus arrived with his disciples in Jerusalem some five days earlier on Palm Sunday. And he celebrated with them the Passover feast. And then he went just outside the walls of Jerusalem on a Thursday evening to his favorite spot, an olive garden just outside of Jerusalem where he was praying. One of his 12 disciples, Judas, blinded by a love for money and greed, had betrayed him and led a band of soldiers on behalf of the religious leaders, the chief priests, to arrest him. And despite his disciples' confidence that they would never betray him, that they would stand by him no matter what, it says in Matthew 26, 56, that the disciples fled. And the soldiers take him to the high priest for a trial before the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body, and they mock him, and they slap him, and they spit on him, and they condemn him to death. But because they are not rulers of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is occupied by the Roman Empire, they have no power to execute Jesus legally. And so they take him to the Roman governor of Jerusalem, of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, who was governor for about 10 years in Jerusalem from 26 to 36 AD, had already had several run-ins with these religious leaders, and he was very suspicious of them. And he examines Jesus and finds him to be innocent. And so seeks to release him by offering a choice between releasing Jesus or releasing an insurrectionist named Barabbas, thinking that the crowd will choose to release Jesus. But the religious leaders have outmaneuvered him. They've whipped up the crowd already, and the crowd shout for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. But Pilate still thinks he might have a solution to pacify them. And so we read the following in John chapter 19, verse 1. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Then they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. See, Pilate the pragmatist thinks that possibly there's a middle ground. And to satisfy the crowd, he arranges a light beating and for Jesus to be mocked, putting a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe and getting soldiers to pay fake homage. But the crowd is still whipped up into this frenzy, demanding his crucifixion. But Pilate is still determined to try and free him. And so Pilate brings him out and famously in verse 5 says, Behold the man. Meaning something like, look at this poor fella. He's harmless. He's no threat to you. But these religious leaders have set Pilate up for a checkmate. Read with me in verse 12. It says the following. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They recast Jesus as a case of insurrection and treason. You're opposing Caesar if you let this free, this rival king go free. And so Pilate is trapped. And reluctantly he consents for Jesus to be crucified. And so they scourge him. They whip him severely with a whip that tears and pulverizes the skin. They force him to carry his cross to the crucifixion site. They strip him naked and they drive nails through his wrists and his feet and attach him to the cross. And then they suspend him just above the ground outside the city. Pilate undoubtedly resenting being pressured into crucifying Jesus, writes a sign kind of as revenge on the Jewish leaders in three languages for maximum effect. This is the king of the Jews. Kind of as a mock to the leaders. Look at your king here hanging on a cross. And yet deeply ironic because he is indeed the king And Jesus in this moment is being physically tortured. He's being mocked. He's in agony from his wounds. He is slowly suffocating as he tries to grab a breath by pulling himself up by his nails in his hands. But this is not the worst of his suffering. Jesus Christ in this moment is enduring the wrath of God. You see, Jesus had come as a place-taking sacrifice for all. The eternal Son of God, part of the triune God who exists as three persons in perfect unity for all time, the divine Son of God himself, clothed in flesh. He was bearing the wrath of God for all of the evil committed by all of God's people. God was pouring out upon him the disgust we might feel at a horrific crime. He was pouring out upon him the punishment 
punishment upon punishment upon his son. And Jesus was willingly bearing it all for us. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was the agony of the cross. You see, thousands and thousands of people over the millennia have been crucified. But what Jesus was enduring was something far greater. Jesus was enduring the greatest suffering the world has ever seen, the world will ever see, in the place-taking sacrifice of the Son of God. Jesus' goal in hanging on the cross was that God could be just and the one who offers forgiveness for those worthy of punishment by taking our place in the death of deaths. By offering, therefore, as a result of his death, free forgiveness through trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so finally we arrive at our passage this morning as Jesus hangs on the cross, suffering in incredible agony. John writes that four soldiers are dividing up his clothes among themselves, four of the lesser items of the clothes that Jesus was likely to have worn, his sandals, his head covering, his outer cloak and his belt, one per soldier each. But the final of his clothing items, the most precious of them all, the inner tunic, Woven from one piece of cloth, they are casting lots for. And so we read in verse 25 of our passage the following. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. John recounts these four women standing nearby, Jesus' mum and his auntie and two other Marys, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary from Magdala. In addition, though he had earlier fled, we read that John himself is present, the disciple Jesus loved. I want us to just stop for a moment and think about the grief that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been going through in this moment. You see, Mary had likely been a widow now for many years. We last read about Joseph back in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. And he is nowhere mentioned in any of the Gospels throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry years. We can assume that Joseph has long died at this point. This was a time where there was no social support for those who were widowed. The family had to support widows or they would face destitution. And Jesus as the eldest son would have been responsible for supporting his mother. And there he hangs, dying. Think about the pain she would have experienced simply as being a mother. You know, Watching my little son, Elijah, grow up for me as a young dad is such a privilege. Seeing things like his first words, which by the way was dad. uh, Milestones, like taking his first step, his little, beautiful, stubborn personality coming out. Teaching him about God, memories from holidays, things that will never leave me. 
A recent example that comes to mind is the very first time he cracked himself up with a massive belly laugh. When he's injured, there's something in my heart that just immediately wants to help him. You know, we read in Luke 2.51 that there were many things that Mary had treasured up in her heart about her son Jesus. Imagine Mary standing at the foot of the cross watching her son die so shamefully. How would you expect Jesus to respond to Mary in this moment? How would you expect him to respond when he is so overwhelmed by pain and grief? I was thinking about it this week and I thought, perhaps that he'd be oblivious. He is enduring the worst suffering ever experienced by a man. He's enduring the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Surely he would be focused on surviving the task before him. Just thinking of myself, you know, not long ago when I had a gastro bug and I was stuck in bed for a day and I'm like, I'm dying. It's terrible. I feel so sick. I can't move. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. All I can think about is me. But to apply our experience to the heart of Christ is to miss his heart completely. Read with me verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even as Jesus bears the wrath of God upon the cross for our sin, he's still thinking about others. The pain of the cross, the judgment of God upon his shoulders. He sees his mother and his mind immediately goes to her plight. He sees her pain, he sees her concern for her son and her future and ensures that she will be always loved and cared for, entrusting her to the care of one of his closest disciples, John. That word woman possibly better translated as dear woman, a term of great endearment. Behold your new son. You know, you might be sitting here this morning and thinking, okay, that's nice that Jesus cared so much about his mum. What does that have to do with me? We read the following in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Mark writes, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those that sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the family of the Lord Jesus has been redefined by the cross. Jesus is saying that his family is no longer primarily those who physically are related to him, but those who trust in God. 
If you're here and trusting in Christ, his heart for you is exactly as if you were his very own family. His heart for you is no different than that which he expressed for his mother. In the midst of his misery, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his affliction, his concern is for her welfare, to be cared for, to be provided for, to be welcomed. J.C. Ryle, the famous Anglican minister, says the following. He says, let us take comfort in the thought that we have in Jesus a savior of matchless tenderness, matchless sympathy, matchless concern for the condition of his believing people. Let us never forget his words. Whoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. The heart that even on the cross felt for Mary is a heart that never changes. Jesus never forgets any who love him and even in their worst state remembers their need. No wonder that Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Isn't that so true? And that is what our passage shows us first and foremost, that the heart of Jesus at the cross displays the heart of God as being filled with compassion for his people. And that's point number one, the heart of God displayed. But not just point number one, the heart of God displayed, but point number two, the heart of God denied. See, this is where we face perhaps our greatest challenge together is that we so often actually struggle to believe that this is actually true. That Christ's heart is actually filled with compassion towards us. You know, Dane Ortland in his wonderful book, Gently and Lowly, describes it this way. He says, the Christian life from one angle is a long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds, listen to this, dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. You know, it's easy to believe, friends, that our constant failures are simply due to poor choices or a lack of effort or unique circumstances or a lack of discipline. But behind all of our sin ultimately lies dark thoughts about the heart of God towards us. You know, why do we struggle so much to be generous with the resources that God has entrusted to us? Dark thoughts about the heart of God. He, he won't satisfy me. He, he won't look after me if I don't keep these things for myself. Why are we tempted to bear grudges or to lash out in anger when a close friend wrongs us? Dark thoughts about the heart of God. He isn't just. He isn't present. He isn't powerful. He doesn't care. 
Why is it so hard not to have a complaining spirit and to be completely thankless? Dark thoughts about the heart of God. Why do we struggle to spend time with the Lord? Why do we see it as a duty and not a delight? Friends, I put to you, dark thoughts about the heart of God. But why? Why do we have dark thoughts about the heart of God? Why do we question the heart of God towards us when we can see it so clearly at the cross? You know, I've been thinking about it this week. I think there's possibly a few different reasons why. I mean, I mean, for starters, you might be new to following Jesus and just starting out your journey to get to know him. And this is all new. You've never heard about the compassionate heart of God. I think another reason is perhaps we, we in part, frequently just simply forget the cross and all Christ has done. But a third reason that I just really want to focus us in on, our attention onto, is that we naturally assume that God operates just like us. And that is tit for tat. Like for like. You know, we started our time together talking about cancel culture and the way in which our society shames and silences those it perceives to be causing harm to others. But the truth is, we so often operate in just the same way. We respond in like to those who wrong us. Our natural inclination is, I'll make you pay for what you have done to me. And here is what naturally happens in light of who we are. We assume that God is just like us. There's some famous verses from Isaiah chapter 55 that are often used out of context. And they put it so well. God speaking through Isaiah the prophet says the following. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, this verse, this passage is usually quoted with reference to the idea that God's thoughts are just beyond us and unreachable to us. And there's some truth in that. But God is actually, in this passage, giving the reason why you should draw near to him and receive his abundant pardon, his mercy and compassion. God is saying, you might think that in drawing near, you will receive punishment, you will receive cold treatment, you will receive tolerance. But God is saying, I am not like you. My thoughts are not man's thoughts. I do not follow man's logic. Come to me and receive abundant pardon. You know, if we're honest, like most of us have a category for Christ showing compassion to us in our suffering due to the brokenness of the world. But not when it comes to our own sin and failure. That is entirely different. 
We tell ourselves things like, ah, I just need to get my act together first. I'm just not in a good place. I'll stay home from church or group today. I can't believe I did that. I just need to pay to show something that I really mean what I, what I've done is not right and just to pay for it just a little bit. Our natural instinct is not to go to him, but to make amends by ourselves alone. But here's the truth. We don't even treat our children this way. You know, one of the things we've been trying to teach Elijah about is that like the oven, you shouldn't touch the oven because you're going to get like burnt and stuff is really hot. I mean, it's obvious to us. And the other day he was at the oven and playing with it again and he jammed his fingers in the door. Do I refuse to help him because what he did was wrong? No way. My heart cries out to help him and rescue him from the danger that he's in. Dane Ortland again from Gentle and Lowly, he says it this way. He says, out of his heart flows mercy. Out of ours, reluctance to receive it. We are the cool and calculating ones, not he. He is open-armed. We stiff-armed. Our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right because we're being stern with ourselves, not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Such sternness feels appropriately morally serious. But this is deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels towards his own. God is, of course, morally serious far more than we are. But the Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under that the feeling that his heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. God's heart confounds our intuitions of who he is. When the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, friends, Mary's sin held him there. Does he despise her for it? Does he give her the cold shoulder or the silent treatment? No. He is filled with mercy, despite even his sufferings, and in compassion moves to comfort her in her sorrows. He is thinking of her even in his darkest hour, and so, friends, is his heart towards you. Here's the truth. For those trusting in Christ, he looks upon you as his very own body. Paul in Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For the Lord Jesus, coming to him in your sin is like applying a healing balm to his very own body. He doesn't despise it for a moment, but he delights in it. See, though we see the heart of God so clearly at the foot of the cross... In truth, we wrestle to truly believe it. And that is point two, the heart of God denied. But not just the heart of God displayed, not just the heart of God denied, but finally, point number three, the heart of God enjoyed. You know, I want us to end with some brief reflections about how do we live in light of the compassion of the Lord Jesus that we see at the foot of the cross now, hopefully we can see that. Actually, for all of us together, this is a genuine struggle for us. Our battle to spend time with the Lord, it's a struggle to trust in His heart. Our failure to draw near to Him in the midst of sin, it's disbelief in the compassion displayed at the cross. 
And so I've got just two very simple points for us by way of ending our time together. I think the first point for us that feel a conviction like me that that at times we've been questioning his heart is is just to repent for that. Repent of questioning his heart. You know, if you're new to following Jesus, repentance is a godly sorrow for doing the wrong thing, for sin and turning from it. You know, you, you might need to do business with God today and ask for his forgiveness for your failures and your failure to believe his heart is the same as the one displayed at the foot of the cross. You know, we so often focus on our behaviors and the things we're doing wrong and we just miss the heart that drives them. In particular, a distrust of his compassionate heart. And so I just want to invite you, if that's you, just spend some time repenting for that, that lack of faith in the heart of Jesus. And secondly, and most importantly, I think the most direct way we can enjoy the compassionate heart of Jesus is to draw near to the King this Easter. You know, there's so many opportunities we have to enjoy Christ and the cross, and yet Easter really is a special one, isn't it? And surely this is the main way we can enjoy all that God has for us in our passage today, to see the beautiful compassion of the Lord Jesus, to see his heart is the same as the one displayed on the cross, and to be compelled to just draw near to him. You know, for those of us here today that are following the Lord Jesus, that know him as your Savior and King, Easter is such a beautiful opportunity to pause and reflect on the cross. Don't let it just be another Easter going and passing by without spending some time just camped out at the foot of the cross. You might want to read for yourself uh, this Easter through together, even as a family or by yourself or with people you're living with, one of the passion narratives in the Gospels and just to read about Jesus in the lead up to the cross. Maybe you want to spend some time uh, worshiping him, just singing praise to Jesus this Easter, mask free, just like guns blazing, all out in tune or not. It doesn't matter. Like, go for it. Um, do a Riley Spring for those who know Riley. It's great. Belt it out. Maybe you want to spend some time in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, just enjoying Christ together. You know what? Actually, part of what Jesus was displaying at the cross was more than just his compassion for Mary. He was actually beginning to form the new family of God. He's saying, Mary, here's your new son, John. John, here's your new mother, Mary. And for us, Christ has included even more brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ in the family of God. And so maybe you want to draw near to the foot of the cross with your new family, our community here. But lastly, just by way of drawing near to the cross, I just want to just pause as we close to speak to those that maybe are with us today, as every week, that don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe here you're on a journey and we just want to welcome you to our community. I hope you've seen this morning in this the compassionate heart of Jesus. And I just want to end with just an invitation for you. Here's an invitation, an open invitation to draw near and receive forgiveness as well. You know, the message of the cross is that Jesus was on that cross for you. That he was paying for your sins in full, that you don't have to earn it to make it in life. That you can find hope, salvation, a future simply through trusting in Jesus and what he did on your behalf. The gospel isn't about being good enough, it's about knowing that you're not and coming to Jesus. And so you have nothing to fear in that. 
Maybe you're here and ready to receive that. Maybe they're ready to make Jesus your Lord and King. All you have to do is pray and ask him to be your savior and he will receive you. Maybe you're here and you're not quite at that place yet and you're kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite there, Brennan, like, but I'm kind of intrigued. Some of these things are good. I want to find out more. Uh, we actually have a course coming up that would be great for you. It's called Christian Explored. It starts on uh, April the 19th, Monday the April the 19th. It's being run by uh, the guy who was just doing the notices before, Simon Walker. Um, it's going to be our first night on the 19th. It's going to be kind of an intro night to the course for anyone who's interested. Pennant Hills Bowling Club, we would love for you to come and join us um, there. Well, friends, we live in a culture where genuine compassion for others is becoming harder and harder to find. I trust that in this passage we've seen that the very heart of Jesus is filled with compassion for everyone who comes to him. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we want to thank you so much that you are not like us. Oh, Lord, what a glorious message. What glorious hope and good news that you do not return to us tit for tat, like for like. You are generous, you are gracious, and you hold abundant compassion for even those who despise you, Lord. Such is your heart. What a beautiful heart. Lord God, I pray for each and every person here. I pray that this Easter we might come to experience your heart in new and deeper ways. Lord, would we camp out at the cross and find ever increasingly the beautiful joy to be found in the heart of God who clothed himself in flesh to rescue us. And so we want to return all the thanks and praise to our matchless Savior, our Lord, our King, the King of all, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.